presidential elections are coming up relatively soon, and we're already sort of beginning to see campaigning, right, political campaigning. And one thing that's kind of standard fare, common for all politicians as they're seeking to be elected, is to attempt to sound like one of the people, right? Politicians want to be, every politician wants to be a man of the people, so to speak. They want to represent the little guy. That's always their pitch. They don't ever want to come across as out of touch with the common person. They don't want to come across as some elitist who doesn't care about the the concerns and the plight of the everyday man. And they don't want to come across as if their policies are just going to favor those in power and those that will just help them continue to stay in power. No, they want to come across, whether sincerely or insincerely, as a a politician for the people. But this is a struggle because in every nation there's always been an antithesis, if you will, between the elites and the common man. In nearly every society, there's been some level of animosity between the nobility and the peasants, right? the, the rich and the poor, uh, the, the, the academic, the experts versus the laity, the famous versus the infamous, however you categorize it, there just tends to be this class animosity. And this is why more often than not, politicians fail to ever really come across these very, very rich, wealthy, powerful people. It's very difficult for them to come across as just like you and me. But Jesus, thankfully, did in fact establish a religion for the little guy. Jesus came and brought a religion for the common man. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37? John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. We are going to finish John chapter 7 today. When you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. Thus saith the Lord, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. As a preacher, I'm very thankful for how John structures John chapter 7. He has a very organized structure to it. 
He began by telling us about an event before the feast. And then last week we saw the text began in the middle of the feast. And then today we now know we've moved to the last day of the feast. Which, uh, as the text goes on to say, is sort of the important day. The, The most important day. If you recall, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is what's going on here, was actually a week long celebration. It was a seven day celebration. But the last day, the day before everyone leaves and goes home, was sort of seen as the final day and the great day. And so all of the ceremonies that took place had like a special holiness, a special reverence to them. And one of those ceremonies that took place on the last day of the feast was a water pouring ritual where the high priest would take this golden vessel and he would walk down to the pool of Siloam and a crowd would follow him and he would get water from the pool and then they would walk back to the temple and then there would be a basin near an altar and he would ceremonially pour the water into the basin and it would roll down to the altar and it would act as a kind of water sacrifice. And the people that were there would have different liturgical chants and hand-raising things that they would do in the process. It was, it was a big ceremony of offering water to God. And the reason they did this was twofold. They wanted to, on one hand, look back and remember when their fathers were in the wilderness and God miraculously provided water for them. First, there was a well of bad water and God miraculously made it good. And then the, the most important thing was the striking of the rock. Remember, they wanted water and Moses struck the rock and water. God provided water to them and that's what the ceremony remembers. That when we were living in tents in the desert, God didn't just give us manna, he gave us water. But it also looked forward. It looked forward to a promise regularly in the Old Testament that one day God would pour out his spirit upon the people. And all throughout the Bible, both the Old and the New, the Holy Spirit is associated with water, symbolized as water. And so there was a very real connection between the pouring out of water and the pouring out of the Spirit. So the sacrament, the ceremony, if you will, really looked both ways. It looked back to the water God provided and it looked forward to the outpouring of the Spirit. And that is most likely what prompts Jesus to preach a message that should sound familiar to you. Because this is basically the same sermon that Jesus preached to the woman at the well. When she was drawing water, he made the same promise to her that he's now making to all these people at the crowd. He is telling them to come to him and he will provide the living water that will be like a well within them that rises up to salvation. He is essentially not only saying that he is the only way of salvation, because it is only by him can you receive this water. But he is simultaneously saying, I am the fulfillment of all of these things you guys are looking at. I am the one who will pour out the Spirit. I am the one who fulfills the types and the shadows of the Old Testament, like the, the, the rock that gave you water. Which, by the way, one of the other epistles, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the rock was Christ. Right? Christ gave them water in the Old Testament, and here he is promising to give them water again. I will give you water if you come to me. He is preaching the gospel so that they might come and have their spiritual thirst quench. And so like we've seen all throughout John chapter 7, Jesus is making a grandiose claim here. I am what the Old Testament is all about, and I am the only way you can receive this promise of God. And so a debate breaks out. Who is this guy? In every chapter, every portion of John 7, we've seen a division over what to think of Jesus. So let's read that debate again. Look at verses 40 through 44 with me. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? 
Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over them, over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So there's this debate that breaks out, and half the crowd thinks that Jesus must be the long-awaited prophet that God promised through Moses. God told Moses in Exodus, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers who will rule over Israel. So some people think this is the prophet. Others think he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. It's interesting because in John chapter 6, the Jews uh, that received the manna, this crowd understood rightfully that those two offices would be fulfilled by the same person. But now, these Jews are obviously divided on that. They think that these are two offices filled by two different people. And so there's a question, is he the prophet or is he the Christ? And it appears that the crowd has landed on he's the prophet and not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. And their reasoning is because we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth, which is from the region of Galilee. And there's a big problem. Because the Bible is clear that the Christ it doesn't come from Galilee, he comes from Judea. Specifically, the city of Bethlehem, where David was from. So how can Jesus be the Christ when he's not from Bethlehem, right? So they eventually settle that he must be the prophet because he's not from Bethlehem. And this is, by the way, what's interesting is, is, is you almost wonder if maybe they were taught this by their authorities. Because this is the same poor surface level objection that the Pharisees rely upon, right? Look at verse 52. After Nicodemus just makes a very mild uh, appeal that maybe we should, you know, as the teachers of the law, maybe we should actually obey the law and like give this guy a fair hearing before we judge him. And they respond with mockery. And notice how they respond. Notice why are they so quick to dismiss Jesus' claims to be the Messiah? Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So this objection that Christ is not the Messiah because he doesn't come from Bethlehem, it kind of confirms a couple things for us. First, it confirms what Jesus said last week that the nation of Israel, they don't know their Bibles. They are very confused, right? We are seeing a lot of confusion about how to interpret the Bible from the nation of Israel. Not only are we have confusion, because like I said, this crowd thinks the prophet and the Messiah are two different people, but we saw in John 6 that they, they understood the prophet and the Messiah were the same person. So the Jews can't make up their mind. Is, are these two different people or are these one people? They don't know. They simply don't know their Bibles very well. But it also... Oh, and we also see a debate. Remember, uh, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, one of the objections the Jews had, the different Jewish crowd had to Jesus being the Christ, is they said, we know where he's from, and when the Messiah comes, no one will know his origin. So some Jews are clinging to this extra-biblical tradition that the Messiah would have this unknown origin. But apparently these Jews don't agree with that because their argument is the exact opposite. They're saying, no, we are going to know with great specificity where the Messiah is from, and Jesus doesn't mean... So, do we know the Messiah's origin? The Jews don't know. Do we know if the prophet and the Messiah are the same person? The Jews don't know. They don't know their Bibles. Jesus was right. They really don't understand the law. But Jesus was also right. A second criticism of Jesus is confirmed here when Jesus said, you guys judge by appearances rather than making righteous judgment. Because here they have this very basic surface level rejection of Christ on the standpoint that the Bible teaches that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Now, thankfully, they did get that right. It is true the Messiah was prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. We get this from a very famous Christmas verse, Micah 5.2. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So Micah prophesies that the long-awaited ruler of Israel would come from Bethlehem, but where is this person's ultimate origin? His human origin is from Bethlehem, but where his, where's his ultimate origin from? Ancient of days. <laughs> which, by the way, was a term ascribed to God. So a divine, eternal person is going to come from Bethlehem. That was the prophecy in the Old Testament. So the Jews are right about that. But their problem is that with just a tiny bit of investigation, they could have learned from Jesus that, yes, while he was raised in Nazareth, he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. How easy was this dispute to solve? All they had to do was ask him, that's how surface level, that's how lacking in substance their criticisms are. Oh, we heard he's from Nazareth. Case closed. All they had to do was ask him, and maybe he could have told us, told them the amazing story that we all get to read every year at Christmas about how the Nazarene is also a Bethlehemite. From the Gospel of Luke, for example, in those days a, decrees, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who also was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. What a cool story they could have learned about how God providentially brought the Nazarene to Bethlehem to fulfill the promise. Jesus is both from Nazareth and from Bethlehem. So he does fit the bill. But this crowd is so surface level that they, they refuse to do any meaningful investigation. They just dismiss him. No, nope, he's from Nazareth. Case closed. We see all of Jesus' criticisms truly being vindicated and fulfilled. And what's especially embarrassing, to some degree, you can almost give the lady an excuse. What's truly embarrassing was that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees themselves, were unwilling to even do just a modicum of investigation. This is especially shameful for the Pharisees. And I believe that the Pharisees really play an important role in trying to understand what God might have for us in this passage today. Because uh, let me explain my thought process to you. I, I, I kind of struggle to know what to preach about today because in many ways... This is just a repetition of what we've seen all throughout John 7. Like, what's new in our passage today? What haven't we seen? All throughout John 7, the same thing happens. Jesus preaches. The people don't understand him. They're divided over who he is, and most of them go away. Some go away believing, but most go away not believing. It's like the same thing happens. What's new here? What else is there to preach that we haven't said the last two weeks? Well, what I notice is peculiarly interesting about this passage is the way John highlights the Pharisees. He brings the Pharisees to our attention and he tells us some behind-the-scenes, closed-door conversations they were having. And so, in one sense, this is 
this portion of the chapter is really just trying to drive the narrative of the gospel. Right? Jesus is eventually going to be crucified. We, we kind of need to know how it got, <laughs> how things escalated. So that it's partly just narrative driven. But I really think there's an important lesson for us to learn in how John talks about this passage specifically. Because what John is highlighting for us is these elites, these academic religious leaders, he's highlighting for us the disdain they have, not just for Jesus, but just for the common person in general. Right, let's read about that. Let's begin with me at verse 45 again. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Let's stop there. So what has happened? The ten, there was a, a, a position of power that was sort of created outside of the New Testament where people, men who were also from the tribe of Levi, which was the, the tribe for the priests, some of them would be made into these like temple guards. So they were still Jewish men. Like these weren't Roman guards. These were very important Jewish men. But their, their function was to be like the, the security team for the temple. And so they were, ended up falling under the authority of the priest, not the government, but the, the religious leaders. So the religious leaders send their little Jewish security team to arrest Jesus. And they go out, and then they come back, and they don't come back with Jesus. And they say, well, we sent you out to get this guy. Where is he? And they basically admit, we didn't obey our orders. Because like so many people, this is a common theme when you read through the Gospels. When Jesus preached, there was something different about him. He spoke with an authority no one had ever heard before. He spoke with a compassion no one had ever seen before. He spoke with a profound wisdom no one had ever plunged before. There was something different about this guy. The, the guards, they're not like bona fide believers, but they understand this is a special man and we see no reason to punish him. So they disobey their orders and they refuse to arrest him. And so obviously the Pharisees get angry with them and how do they respond? They respond with humiliation and with a total disdain for the common person. Right? We see in their outrage the way they view the, the common person. Because what they do to these guards is they lump them in with what is from their perspective the dumb laity. <laughs> Are you deceived too? We expect those stupid commoners to be deceived. But we didn't expect this stupidity from you. You're deceived like the, like the masses? And notice how they even appeal to themselves. Have any of the Pharisees believed in Jesus? In other words, you know, what, you know what they're essentially telling him right now? Trust the experts. You ever heard that before? Trust the experts. You think Jesus is special. 99.9% .9 of all the experts disagree with you. Do any of the Pharisees believe in Jesus? No. So why do you? I understand all the dumb commoners do, but they're laity. What do they know? The experts don't believe in him. Why do you? Do you see the total arrogance and the disdain that these prideful Pharisees have as they look down from their ivory towers of academia and despise the common everyday person? They view them, they, they even cause this crowd that doesn't understand the law is accursed. They're accursed from God because they're so gullible and they just don't know the Bible like we do. 
And then they continue to show this sort of disdain for the common man when they respond to one of their own. Nicodemus, who is himself a Pharisee, but we know from John 3, he's kind of on the guard side. He hasn't come out and said that yet, but he, he obviously thinks well of Jesus. He's sneaking around at night learning from him, calling him rabbi. And so he sort of gives a very passive defense. It's not even like a full-fledged defense. He just gives this very passive of defense, like, well, can we at least hear the guy out? Can we at least, like, examine his arguments or something? And how do they respond? Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. How do they respond when Nicodemus just kind of politely suggests, maybe we should like obey the Bible? Do they respond, iron sharpens iron. Thank you, brother. Thank you for, that was a real missight on our, we appreciate that correction. No, they do the same thing to him, to their colleague that they do to the guards. They try to humiliate him. Are you one of those backwater hicks too? Galilee? The backwater hicks, they don't know anything out there. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. The only thing that could possibly explain why Nicodemus would be defending the Nazarene would be if he has some secret bias for those backwater Galileans. So they mock him. You, you must be one of them rednecks too. Don't you know your Bible, Nicodemus? Don't you know that Christ doesn't come from Bethlehem? You're following the conspiracy theories of the masses. You're not trusting the experts. Now take the Pharisees and let's just juxtapose this with another very important, very special person in this text, the Lord Jesus himself. While they're in their ivory towers sneering at the commoners, where's Jesus? Verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as of yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus, on the other hand, is not in the temple, sneering at the crowds. He's among them. He's in their midst. And he is not treating them as these dumb commoners who can't understand his message. He's treating them as people who can hear the gospel and believe it all on their own. He's treating them with, the tr with decency and equality. As he stands among the people and he calls them to himself. And, 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 the, and the specific way he preaches the gospel is important to us here. Notice his gospel presentation here is highlighted on the Holy Spirit. He talks about metaphorically filling them with water. And then John goes out of his way to tell us this is talking about the Holy Spirit. Not the full measured Holy Spirit. That comes at Pentecost. But nonetheless, when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Spirit. So why is there an emphasis on the Spirit in this gospel presentation here? Right, some of it is because of the ceremony was pointing to the Spirit. But I think another reason is subtle, but it's important. You see, in the Jewish mindset, in the Old Testament, the Spirit still moved among the people. But typically the Spirit, at least seemingly, was reserved for the important people. Right, if you read through your Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit shows up, He shows up to anoint the kings. 
He anointed Saul. He anointed David. When the Holy Spirit shows up, he shows up to anoint the prophets. And he will come over the prophets and fill them with tongues and utterances and spiritual gifts. And so the mindset of the, the, the Old Testament was that, yeah, there's the Holy Spirit, but he's really for the important people. He anoints kings and prophets and priests. The Holy Spirit's not for the common everyday guy. And here Jesus is standing in the midst of the Jews saying, the same Holy Spirit that anointed David, the same Holy Spirit that called Samuel, the same Holy Spirit that has chosen and anointed every high priest, you can have him. He's yours. And he's going to fill you. And guess what? He's going to fill you to an even greater measure than he ever filled Abraham or David or any of the fathers. You get him plus some. And you don't have to be a king. You don't have to be a priest. You don't have to be a prophet. This is a call to everyone. Anyone who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ has this promise from Christ. The promises of Christ our king that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit unto salvation. And so let me just take a, a quick rabbit trail. Let, let, I think this is an appropriate time for this to be our reminder of, of just what kind of a privilege and a blessing you have as a Christian. According to Jesus, His atoning work is applied to you by the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is the well of water that overflows within you into eternal life. Paul talks about this blessing in Romans. He says in verse 11, chapter 8, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells within you. What do you have as a Christian? The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you to give you eternal life, to change your life around, to bring you into heaven. You have the greatest gift God could possibly give us. I, this isn't in my notes, but I'm going to share it anyway. I, I read a story, two different stories the last week of athletes signing contracts. I saw a quarterback in Chicago sign a contract. I saw he didn't take it for political reasons I won't get into. But there's a soccer player from France who was offered a contract to play for Saudi Arabia. Is I guess created or is creating a soccer team. I don't know. Uh, they wanted this, this world star soccer player to play for him. Guess how much money they offered him for a one year contract. Over $700 million. Can you imagine... Making $700 million to do the thing you love the most in the world anyway. And I don't know why, when I heard that, for some reason, this has never happened to me before, I got intensely jealous. I mean, do you know how much just $1 million would just transform my life forever? Because I'm sure you can relate. I just remember thinking, why don't I have that? And when I was preaching through, studying the sermon, I was really convicted because this is not just, I'm not just, this is not just a talking point. I'm not just trying to be a spiritual guru here. This is facts. This is the promises of Christ my King. Okay? You have something infinitely better than $700 million. $700 million will not go with you into the grave. $7 million will not fill you and well up into eternal life. Can you put a price tag on the Holy Spirit? We have to come to the realization, we have to come to the grips that as Christians, we truly are blessed more than any person in the world. No matter how much power 
we have or don't have, no matter how much money we have or don't have, no matter how much health we have or don't have, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are the most blessed, privileged person in the entire world. We have the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead living within us. God doesn't need to give me $700 million to bless me. He's blessed me more than I already deserve and could ever imagine by filling me with the Spirit. And Christ, here's the key for us, is offering that Spirit not to just to the Pharisees, not just to the prophets, not just to the kings. He's offering it to everyone. So I thought, what's, what's unique about this passage compared to the other ones we looked at John 7? I came to this conclusion. Jesus came to save those who are low in the world. Jesus just has a special place in his heart for the common person, for the overlooked person, the downcast, the oppressed, the powerless. Jesus brought a religion that doesn't try to curry favor with the elites, make backdoor deals with the powerful people. He almost blows by them without a thought to get to the common man. Jesus is not hanging out around the Pharisees trying to make himself more popular. He's with the common man, offering them the privilege, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to save those who are low in the world. Now, I, I do, I want to clarify, this does not mean that the gospel is not for the elites. Okay? Certainly, the reason we pray for the nations in our church is because of what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved to come to a knowledge of the truth. So don't get me wrong, Jesus saves Pharisees too. Nicodemus, we're going to see in the book of Acts, comes to salvation. He saves kings. He saves politicians. He saves governors. God loves powerful people and he wants to save them. But that's easy. That's what every religion does. That's what every person does. What's so subcultural about the gospel is not the fact that God saves kings. That's expected. It's the fact that Jesus would treat the kings and the Pharisees no different than the everyday man. In Jesus' eyes, they're all the same. He humbles the downcast. He lifts up the downtrodden. He says, that spirit that King David had, you want him to? You can have him. What's so subversive about the gospel is the special care and attention that Christ gives to the common person, to the little guy. And, and, and I think there, we can conclude with this. There are some really important applications that we can draw from this principle. That the gospel is for the low in the world. I've got three of them. So let's conclude our sermon with three applications to this humbling gospel. The first application for you is this. Because Christ came to say what is low in the world, we then should show no partiality. Christians show no partiality. Stay here, or forgive me, you can keep your marker here if you'd like, but turn to the book of James. You're going to go back in your Bible a little ways. If you get to 1 Peter or 2 Peter or 1 John, you've gone too far. James chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 9 with me. Fairly self-explanatory verses.
James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Human beings just have this natural tendency to be starstruck. We're prone to favor attractive people, wealthy people, famous people, powerful people. But Jesus' gospel for the common man, it liberates us from that desire. It liberates us from that inclination. It frees us from that. In Christ, we get to put favoritism to death. It's now been granted to us through the gospel to see human beings as God sees them which are men and women made in God's image who need a savior. And that's all we should care about when we look at a person. If a rich man comes in boasting, I have wealth, what's my response? I don't care. Do you have Jesus? If a poor man comes into our midst, I have nothing, I'm poor. What's our response? I don't care. Do you have Jesus? We are freed from having to care any longer about a person's gender, race, economic standing. These things don't matter to us in Christ. They are image bearers who need Jesus. Isn't there freedom in being able to see the world through that lens? So we don't have to show partiality and we ought not to. To favor the rich over the poor, to favor the powerful over the, over the oppressed. Why? Because God doesn't do that. Because Jesus doesn't do that. Let the Pharisees do that. That's not for Christians. We show no partiality. Another thing, application of the gospel for the poor is this. We must surrender our desire for respect. Let me put it another way. You must surrender your desire for respect. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn back just a little bit in your Bibles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verses 18 through 25 with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When you become a Christian, you choose to put Christ and people before your reputation. We are no longer allowed to care whether my colleagues or your friends or your family thinks you're smart. You don't get to care about that anymore. Because Christianity is a gospel for the common man. God's desire was to have a gospel that would shame the wise of the world. It would shame the wisdom of the world. You, as a Christian, you will never fit in with the wisdom of the world. You can't. The gospel is antithetical to the wisdom of the world. You cannot be a Christian and not be a fool to the wise. It can't happen. And this is why our enemy knows this. And that's why one of the strongest forms of, of, of persecution is peer pressure. Specifically, pressure attacking our intellect. The, the enemy loves to attack your intellect. The enemy wants you to feel very, very stupid for the things that you believe. This was the very pressure the Pharisees put on Nicodemus and the guards, was it not? Not you guys too. Don't tell me. Don't tell me. You guys are like those commoners who believe Jesus is the Messiah. The guy from Nazareth? You fools. They're just mocking them and they're using humiliation as a strategy. And it's a powerful weapon. If you are too in love with your reputation, if you're too in love with your desire to be thought well of, you're going to compromise your Christianity. My dad has a friend who started an apologetics ministry and he was lamenting this one time about how we have all these Christians, especially the experts and the trained and the academics, and they're willing to just get rid of basic Christian orthodoxy to please their colleagues. And, and I love the way he described it. One time he described it as they signed this secret contract and the, the conditions of the contract that they make with the unbelieving world are this. I won't call you a heretic if you don't call me stupid. I won't call you a heretic. I won't judge you as long as you don't call me stupid. But we can't sign that contract. They are heretics. And we need to say it and they will mock you. They'll make fun of you. We don't have to care. Because God's gospel is for the fools. It's for the foolish. It's for the lowly of the world. It's not for the wise of the world. So we have to just, we, not we have to, we get to. We get to free ourselves from being enslaved to the idol of a good reputation. But perhaps, and I apologize, I'm running late on time, but there's a very important application, our third and final application, and it's the one Paul himself makes. And that is to boast only in the Lord. To boast only in the Lord. Let's continue in this passage in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Paul says the primary reason why the gospel was designed to attract the lowliness of the world and the foolish of the world and to subvert the wisdom of the wise was so that when it's all said and done, we'll have no one to give credit to but God himself. We can't, we can't credit the spread of Christianity to the philosophers or to the powerful armies or to the powerful politicians because those by and large are not the people coming to Christianity. In Christianity, the world has been turned upside down by everyday people like you and me. And when you realize that, there's only one way you can make sense of that. This is the power of God. And so may we, in application of this gospel, may we be a church that seeks to never boast in ourselves. You are not saved because you're just so smart. You're just so much smarter than your unbelieving neighbors. You're like the Pharisees. You're the enlightened ones. Those fools, they don't know Christianity is true. You're not saved because of your own works. You, were just, you just earned it. You worked it. You earned that salvation. That's not the kind of gospel God came with. Jesus came with a gospel that subverts those intuitions that you have to be super smart to get it. That you have to be super holy to make it. No, no. The gospel subverts the wisdom of the wise. And at the end of the game, all we're left to do is glory in God. The glory and the gift he has given us by grace, which we did not earn. May a gospel for the poor be a gospel that brings us down in humility so that we boast in nothing but the Lord.